episode 90, Improvements versus Restoration in Facial Plastic Surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Trosclair, and today we're Dr. Ben Tali Perspective. Join 2017 Podcast Awards-nominated host, Dr. Justin Trosclair, as he gets a rarely seen look into the specialties of all types of doctors and guests, plus marketing, travel tips, struggles, goals, and relationship advice. Let's hear a doctor's perspective. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in again. I had the baby. September 6th, 22 inches, about eight pounds. Her name's Ruby. Unsheen. Un means like appreciation. Sheen is like growth, whether it's the flowers, whether it's your business, uh, things like that. So it's like the appreciation of growth. Tell you what, being a dad is pretty cool. It's uh, living up to the hype that everyone says when she looks at you and smiles and it feels like she recognizes your face or your voice. That's a great feeling. So just wanted to share the good news on with the show. Hey, you know, two weeks ago we had a plastic surgeon on and, you know, his focus mostly was on hair restoration and rhinoplasties and things. This guy, we got a different take on it. One, he's really well-rounded. Everything from a private eye to a past ski instructor and racing. And he's going to talk about how he chose to do plastic surgery when he started out doing more like cancer removal. It's a kind of a powerful story and speaks to his character, I think. We're going to talk about symmetry versus ideal outcomes and facial flow. What's the most important? How does he handle that? How does he handle body dysmorphic people? He has a procedure that he does that he's kind of perfected called the modified upper lip. He said something like, you pull up on the straps, you get more accent on the cupid's bow, and you get a sexy upturn of the lip showcasing your teeth when you smile. I was like, all right, go to Instagram. You can see what he's talking about. And we discuss a little bit about how to handle fake reviews, people who uh, are just out to get you, and what do you do about it? Can you do anything about it? Stay tuned to the end for a little bit of the ads. Show notes can be found at adoctorsperspective.net slash nine zero. Let's go hashtag behind the curtain. Live from China in Beverly Hills, today, we have an amazing doctor on. He graduated from UCLA, UC San Diego School of Medicine. He did his residency at Columbia University in the head and neck surgery. And he did two separate fellowships for facial plastic and reconstructive surgery. And he also specializes in vascular birthmarks and congenital anomalies for mostly pediatrics. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ben Tali. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well... I, I was reading your profile. It is exhaustive. You know, as a, as a chiropractor, we're like, we've trained. But then when you start seeing surgeons and fellowships and residencies, all of a sudden you're like, yeah, but not as much as you guys. Y'all are just an amazing bunch of people to be able to dedicated so many years uh, to the actual craft of what you do. And um, it's just a pleasure to, to, to talk to you, have you on the show. Uh, one way I like to always start it off is you could have done a lot of things in life, especially even if you were going to go doctor. How did you end up picking facial plastic and reconstructive surgery as your go-to uh, all the way to fellowship? Yeah, it's a complex path, I'd say. My my life, uh, I knew from a young age I wanted to be a doctor. I was kind of, you know, I was lucky in that way where uh, when I was about six years old, five years old, my pediatrician pulled wax out of my ear and uh it excited me, and I, I wanted to be a doctor from that point. So it inspired me. Going through high school, I couldn't decide, though, if I wanted to be a teacher or a doctor. So um, as time went on, I realized, well, if I'm a teacher, I can't be a doctor, but if I'm a doctor, I can be a teacher. So I decided to go that route. And, uh, you know, once I got into med school, again, I was having 
conflict about what I wanted to do. You know, I, I, I had the, in my mind, I had envisioned myself as uh, some glorious heart surgeon or a neurosurgeon, so, you know, something that is truly glorified at a young age for, for us. And uh, eventually, I kind of narrowed it down to two things that were just more fun for me, uh, which was uh, I wanted to do head and neck surgery, which was head and neck cancer, or I wanted to do orthopedics. And um, I grew up doing orthopedics pretty much. Like I was doing carpentry my whole life, uh, which is very heavily related to, to, to orthopedics. And so I felt as though, in a way, I already had a big understanding of, of parts of that. And I wanted to learn something completely different and a little more delicate or intricate, even though I loved orthopedics. And so I went towards head and neck surgery. And this is, you know, after my time as a private investigator, I was like a piano teacher. I did a bunch of stuff in the meanwhile while figuring the stuff out. Um, and once I got the head and neck surgery, I loved it. And we would do cancer extirpations, meaning we would take out the cancers and then we would reconstruct them. So part of it was facial reconstructive surgery. The issue I came to face around my third year of residency was that I had to tell patients they had cancer. And that really sucked. Uh, I would sit there, and I'm a very, um, I'm a very, I'd say, easy person to project upon. So as soon as someone starts to feel any kind of emotion, I feel it almost as quickly as they do. Uh, sometimes before they know they're going to cry, I would start crying, and uh, you know, I'd, I'd go through this a couple times a day, telling people they had cancer, and it was very, very rough for me that year. Uh, towards the end of that year, I realized, you know what? I might want to save people's lives, and it's a very noble thing to do, and it's great, but it is taking a toll on me. It was just beating me into the ground. And um, I really did have a huge appreciation for the reconstructive part of the, the surgeries, and I started to focus on that more, and that led me into cosmetics, where I would, you know, the, the guys who did cosmetics and uh, also did reconstruction, and once I saw the cosmetic surgeries, I got an even greater appreciation for it because I'm a very tactile person, very technical person. And I really love trying to do things well and making things look nice and becoming uh, as, as, I'd say, as, as good as I can and as creative as I can be with any kind of project you, you put me in front of. And um, I saw these surgeries as uh, not just a way to make patients happy, but a way to make me happy. Uh, and that's how this uh, really, I'd say, evolved over time for me is that I've come more and more to love the work. And coincidentally, I'm lucky enough that I get to make patients happy at the same time. And at the uh, simultaneously, I'm also able to teach. So all these things I was in love with uh, throughout the years kind of came together into the job I have now. And to put the icing on the cake, I still get to do the cancer surgeries because I did that separate fellowship in uh, pediatric plastics and pediatric uh, vascular birthmarks. So I get to still take out tumors, but these are not tumors that kill people. These are tumors that grow slowly. They're vascular anomalies uh, like big hypertrophic port wine stains and venous malformations, lymphatic malformations. Uh, so I, I really got my dream job where I get to do everything I wanted. It's, 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 it's the ideal of, of everything for me. When you're finished your residency is just doing, say, head and neck surgeries, do you feel like confident that your technique would leave somebody still looking pretty good? Or do you feel like you would need to uh, you would want to go to somebody potentially that has that extra facial plastic so that they don't have like these massive scars after, you know, tumor yeah. removal or something? Yeah. So, so I myself was always, I'd say, in the surgical world, uh, I was prematurely confident. 
but at the same time, I was always doubting myself. So I knew better than to, to think that I was good at a young age. And that's why before taking patients on uh, on my own, I, I went and I you know, finished my training and then I did two, two fellowships after um, and traveled for, for the entire residency. I was actually taking vacations and for the vacations you know you take about four weeks a year and i would go travel to different surgeons across the country and learn from them uh, so when i graduated i had a bigger breadth of experience than most other people in my position which uh, made it easier for me when i graduated to feel comfortable operating on people on my own uh, with the reconstructive part you know i felt very comfortable early on because uh a lot of it is, I'd say it's very fancy patchwork. It's, you know, there's a, there's a craft to it that's difficult to learn, but once you learn it, you can safely implement it. Whereas I'd say when you're doing something as trivial sounding as a nose job, that's something where you really, really have to, to hone your expertise over years and years and years to get better and better because there's so many different ways to, to do it. You know, reconstructive surgery didn't seem that way to me. There were kind of a limited number of ways of doing things unless you were really going to change the surgery and, you know, develop something new. When I look at these before and afters, even for like the rhinoplasties, I just look at it like you have to know so many different body faces, like shapes, sizes, what's wrong with it in your opinion as the patient versus what's my opinion as the doctor and making sure it looks good because that's part of the reason why they're there is, is maybe it's not always cosmetic, but, you know, I can't breathe. But when it is cosmetic, it, it's your job to sort of say this is what the standard is that looks good. And do you have to like keep up with the trends as far as you know, we were talking ahead of time about what a modified upper lip procedure is? And we're going to talk about that versus like a, a filler for the lips. Do you have to somehow keep up with what is trendy? In a, in a way, yes. Um, the you know, it's a, I'd say it's a major pitfall for people that just uh, completely embrace anything that's trendy. Uh, without, I'd say, doing their due diligence and allowing things to be tested and tried over and over again. Uh, however, trends help uh, evolve the practice of, of medicine overall. So you can look at it in a positive way and a negative way. Okay, you have people who come out uh, a little overambitious, come up with a new procedure, say it's the best thing ever, and it's a million times better than everything else, but without having proven it. They just say mm. it. Uh, those are very dangerous positions to, to, to jump into. Um, however, I'd say if things are changing for the better, and that's a trend, uh, you better jump on that wagon because uh, someone else saw something you didn't see and you need to go learn from that person. So there's the, you know, the world of facelifting. world of facelifting has been kept in the dark ages for years. People have been doing these mass plication facelifts, which are skin pull, muscle tightening facelifts, which I would not say are terrible by any means at all. But for the most part, if you look at it on a national or international scale, it's a very limited surgery when you're looking at insight or logic. Now, there are people who do a very, very good smastication lift, but more often than not, it is an antiquated procedure. It's very rare that you find somebody who does an amazing job like you know Dan Baker in New York or you know, probably a dozen other people I can list. Whereas someone... You know, came out and said, "You guys, you're 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 operating in the wrong plane. You need to go a little bit deeper, and it's not dangerous like you think. You know, you just have to learn how to do it properly, and it's safe." And there's a guy named Sam Hamra in, in Texas who really popularized that, and this became 
a very, very slow trend. It took probably about 10, 15 years for it to gain any kind of popularity. Um, but now that it's been proven by, I'd say, a couple pioneers in the field who are very uh, successful at, at what they did, the new trend is, okay, everybody, let's start going towards deep plane facelifting because if we're not doing deep plane facelifting, we're not, doing, we're not giving patients adequate treatment. And this is something that is very conflicting, I'd say, in plastic surgery versus other forms of medicine. In internal medicine, a new blood pressure medicine comes out and it definitively has less side effects and greater efficacy than the medication prior to it. Nobody's going to sit there prescribing the old medicine. Everybody right. came out and said, here, you got this new medicine. It works better. Here's less risk. Don't be stupid. You got to use it. You, you, you owe that to your patient to do the best you possibly can. Um, not the best you were taught, <laughs> the best you possibly can. And big difference. Plastic, it, big, yeah, it is. And, and plastic surgery, unfortunately, uh, doesn't follow that trend out of either lack of insight or out of inconvenience. It is not convenient for somebody to abandon their practice and learn something new sometimes because they have to go watch it be done 50 times uh, before it's safe. And so financially, it makes no sense. Uh, practically, for running their practice, it makes no sense. So instead of adapting and changing, uh, a lot of these plastic surgeons will stick to the old ways. And this is unfortunately the way of 95% of the world, 95%. Uh, that, and that's a pretty, I'd say, accurate statistic. So that's what's interesting is you got, you, and I'm guessing when you're talking uh, efficacy and we're talking, if you're going to have like a facelift, you want it to look natural for 20 years, 30 years. Cause we all see those uh, celebrities who you're like, ooh, who'd you go to? Because I don't want to go see that person because it looks so bad. Is that one of the ways that you can fix it by doing that deeper, the deeper level? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's one of the ways. I mean, the deep plane uh, in facelifting is a little bit more advanced, but it makes it easier to get a long-term result with less scarring. It makes it easier. It doesn't mean somebody can't do a masplication, which is the older type, and, and get it done properly. You know, they can, but you're automatically doing something more logical. The, the prior technique of smasplication is based upon the assumption that your skin is sagging over time. I've uh -huh. never met a single person in my life who only sags in their skin and then all and, and their fat and their muscles all stay in the right position. It doesn't make any sense. Everything sags. The, the, the skin sags, the fat sags, the muscle sags. So why would you go only lift the skin or only lift the skin and tighten the muscle? Logically, somebody explains this to you and say, well, yeah, it makes sense. Everything drooped. Go get everything back up. Why How do we do you, it? Yeah, why, why would you just go take a third of what droop? Take everything to droop. <laughs> uh, and, and the problem is they just people don't have the ability to do it. And so um, when they try to do it, they can cause damage without being trained properly. And then they spread uh, rumors. They spread myths that, you know, it's a dangerous thing. Don't do it. It's dangerous. I tried it. I know. Don't do it. Yeah. Um, and realistically, huh. yeah, they did try it. And they did mess it up. But it's because they jumped into it without being trained properly. And, yeah, and that's the way of, of surgery. Now, there's a for microtia. There, there was one. I won't name names on the on the techniques, but there was one guy who popularized a certain type of ear surgery and published it in all journals. There was another guy who came out and had a better ear surgery and wanted to publish it in all journals. And the the first guy wouldn't allow the the publications to to get out of the second guy. And so everybody in the world was stuck thinking, okay, this is the best ear surgery because we haven't heard about the other one. Uh -huh. Then all of a sudden the internet came out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't keep things suppressed anymore. 
and people have now adapted to, to the other way. So there's a lot of reasons people don't evolve uh, in plastic surgery. You know, a lot of them is just being complacent. A lot of them is uh, lack of having the right education from either not training with the correct people, I'd say, or the best people, or who you, you know, who are the best people versus who you believe to be the best people. And then other is not getting that information out there. We don't like to think that there's politics and all this kind of stuff in our research, but um, there's definitely that going on. And like you said, with the internet, at least you can, you still have a voice. You can exactly. get it out there. Exactly. And things have rapidly, rapidly expanded since the advent of the internet and since the advent of medical journals on the internet, where people yeah. are just, you know, you don't have just PubMed anymore. You have a million resources now. So people are learning. And even if the highest peer-reviewed journal is suppressing some information because the editor of that journal does not want it publicized, you can still get the information from another journal now. There are plenty of them. Yeah. Okay, let's chat about this modified upper lip procedure. I'm not really sure what it is, but I saw some of the results and I was like, hmm, that looks pretty good. Like, why would somebody get it? What are they looking for? Is it purely cosmetic or is it, do they have like uh, actual procedures that it's necessary for? Yeah, so, so there, there is some medical necessity to, to, to lip lifts. Um, it is not as common as the cosmetic need for it. And that's the main thing is what dentists would call lip incompetence, where the upper lip is kind of uh, flabby, long, and really can't contract very well. So when somebody talks, it's like they just have like a big curtain kind of hanging over their mouth, and it's just flapping back and forth. Um, so that's it's that's a, no good. Yeah, no, no, it's no good, and it's the only good treatment for uh, lip incompetence. But if you do it incorrectly, it can actually cause lip incompetence. So that's uh, you know something to be careful of. The lip lift in general is a procedure that was developed, I'd say popularized uh, somewhat about 15, 20 years ago, first discussed maybe 25 years ago. The whole idea is that just like the face droops, the lip can kind of lengthen and droop over time too. Or people just tend, tend to have longer upper lips and you can't see their teeth. And if you can't see someone's teeth are inside their mouth, they kind of lose sexuality and sensuality and they also tend to look a little bit older. Hmm. So uh, the lip lift is a great procedure for that. However, for years, uh, people were very hesitant to do it on anybody but a, you know, a 70-year-old uh, white woman because they believed that it would cause, and not just they believed, it, it would cause a lot of scarring across the nasal base or widening of the nose. So very hmm. rarely would it be done on somebody younger or someone of a different color uh, because of the potential for scarring. What I did, the reason I would even call it a modified upper lip lift, is to try to get people to understand there's a very, and this is mainly doctors, that there's a very simple way to just change the procedure and get it done properly. So I called it the modified upper lip lift. And there's no other reason I did it than, than for that. Um, and the way that I do it now is that I use the classic incision the way it was taught. I made a couple you know, changes on how I tailored on each patient. But the main thing that I changed was releasing all the tension on the skin and then not trying to suture skin to skin. I suture uh, in a very different way because this is a procedure that, unlike many other procedures, it's very unforgiving to, to imprecise suturing. Mm. So either way, I've modified it to the point where I can perform it on people uh, in their early 20s. I can perform it on 80-year-olds. And the application has now broadened. So I can perform it on the patients who are older and have a senile upper lip or a longer aged upper lip. Um, I can perform it on patients who have had silicone injections in the past and silicone causes horrendous 
expansion of the lip and you know people get bigger fatter non-functional upper lips and i can reduce that i also mm. use it on younger patients who keep trying to fill their lips with filler and are not getting the right result so you get all the filler out of their lip and instead of trying to get the sexiness of the mouth out by filling it or volumizing it i actually just shorten the lip and make it look more delicate and more accented so it's got a wide variety of applications now huh. it gives it like a like a perkiness to it yeah, it does. It perks. It. That's exactly what it does. It's a belt and suspenders kind of thing. So, the huh. uh, uh, you you pull it up uh, uh, on its straps and which are the filtral columns, and you end up getting more accent along the cupid's bow, uh, more of an upturn of the lip, which makes it sexier, and you get to see into the mouth more. And it's a really, really, I'd say you know, really nice procedure to do, and it's very high yield when you look at it in terms of how much you can change the face around. So I love wow. doing it for this stuff. And people are becoming more educated about it. And um, it's gaining popularity. And doctors are kind of coming around to realizing they could do it slightly differently and uh, do so without harming people. Um, and I think it's great because it's also just sending a message, not necessarily that people need to get this surgery, but it tells people you can't fix everything with fillers. Mm-hmm. So it's just something to be aware of because everybody keeps overdoing it. And this is telling you, there's a cutoff point because other people are doing the surgery so maybe you shouldn't be doing fillers the whole time and although i don't think the surgery is for you just understand that you know you don't want to make the lip bigger 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 right when did you learn or did you always have a knack for i guess symmetry because you see can see so many different styles of faces and one person might think this is what's beautiful and another person thinks this is beautiful yeah do patients just like bring in a picture of somebody that they think is attractive and like, can I look like this? And then you have to make a decision, yes or no, or yeah, we can get yeah, they, close? They do, they do. So, so there's the discussion of ideals of what they want, and there's the discussion of symmetry. Uh, the ideals, people bring in these pictures, and you know we look at them together, and they're great for a discussion, saying, this is what I want, and I can tell them, well, I can achieve something like this, or I can't because so-and-so, because your nose is uh, thick-skinned, because, you know, for a million reasons, I can explain to them clearly why I can't get what they want or I can get what they want. That's why those pictures are good. It also helps weed out people who might clearly have an unrealistic vision of what they can achieve. And you might not want to touch those people because you're not going to make them happy. Um, And that could be people with body dysmorphia, meaning they see things that nobody else sees. Or it could be people that just have unrealistic goals and plastic surgery is only going to lead them down a path of looking horrible because they're going to keep trying to get things that they shouldn't uh, achieve for their face type. And, you know, I, I do a lot of car analogies in general, but, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I tend to tell people things in terms of cars. I say, you know, you can bring in a, uh, a Fiero. I don't know if you know what that is. <laughs> you can bring in a Fiero and you can actually dress it up and make it look like a Lamborghini. Okay, it works. But you can't bring in a Fiero and try to make it look like a Cadillac Escalade. It's a completely different body structure. Yeah. Okay. So these are tiny little cars. You can't make them to these big cars. It doesn't happen. Either way, uh, that, that's what that's useful for. The the uh, approach for symmetry, I look at very differently, I'd say, than most people. So when you look at someone's face and you analyze uh, the face to, to see what's beautiful, a lot of people try to attribute beauty to symmetry. Indeed, or in fact, if you look at uh, you know, 99.99999% of the world, I'd say almost everybody but one person out of six billion, nobody's going to be symmetric. And we're not supposed to be symmetric. And we know that just, you know, very basic understanding. If you look at people being right-handed and left-handed, 
Uh, that's your that's the way your brain is wired. That's the way everybody's brain is. What are mm-hmm. the chances that you're going to have a right and left face that are exactly the same in the way they function or move or act or anything? It's mm-hmm. nearly impossible. So I tend to think that people uh, chase symmetry a little bit too much. They don't realize that a lot of our beauty and I'd say pleasant appearance comes from the fact that we have mild asymmetries. Major asymmetries, nobody likes. Major symmetry, similarly, looks weird to us. So I like to have mild asymmetries in the face. And when it bothers people, I tell them, don't chase it too much. I can maybe give you a little bit of an improvement, but you're chasing the wrong thing. It's never going to make you look better. It just might make you obsess over it less. That's about it. Yeah, and there's, you know, and I try to show them, here's your facial symmetry and here's your facial flow. And the flow is, uh, just like I said, you have dominance of the face right and left. The flow will pull towards whatever is dominant side of the face. So somebody might have their forehead in the center and their nose starts veering to the right. And as you come down, you can see their lips go to the right and their chin goes to the right even more. And that's your facial flow. And it makes you asymmetric, but it's, uh, it's natural. And it follows the dominance of your face. Not really what side you sleep on, but what side is stronger. So everybody has a a normal facial flow and you have to make sure that whatever surgery you do, you realize that flow before trying to make things symmetric or fix things that aren't supposed to be fixed. That's a really good point to ask if someone's, you know, doesn't use you and just go somewhere else. But those types of thought patterns, like the flow is important. When someone has a, I don't know what you guys call it, like medically, but they have more of a round face or a boxy face or like a flat face. Mm-hmm. And they might have a flat face, but they want a round face feature. And you're like, look, you don't even match. Like, <laughs> here's here's 20 people that are popular with your same style of face. Pick something out of this. Like, you can't go on this other realm because you're never going to be, you're never going to look like that. Yeah, yeah. And so so, so that's one way that, that we approach it. The other is with age. So people come in and they say, well, this is what I looked like 20 years ago, 30 years ago. This is what I want to look like. And I try to explore I had a nose job done before and. The second nose job, you know, I had messed it up and I wanted to go back to how it was before I did any kind of nose job. And I try to explain to people, listen, I'm not that creative. I don't have, you know, I'm not a genius. I don't have these abilities. I'm a very simple person and my satisfaction rate amongst my patients is very, very high and we keep things simple. I don't try to achieve the unachievable. Uh, And what this means is I'm not going to set you back 20 years ago to how you look because it's multivariable. There's so many different things that cause you to change over time. Right now, I'm a simple person. All I can do is look at you and say, well, you lost some volume here. I can replace it. You drooped over here. I can lift it back up. You know, very, very simple things. I can't take into this multifactorial analysis and try to figure out how to restore everything to how it was. It's not physically possible. I don't have the abilities of God or to reverse what's happened over time. I can't do these things putting your nose back to how it was. I cannot restore that structure because it's been surgically altered. All Mm -hmm. I can do is look at where it is now and improve it from where it is now. I cannot restore it to what it was. And this is a conversation I have all the time and almost everybody is receptive and understanding and they go with it and they go into the surgery with very realistic expectations. With the body dysmorphic types, do you recognize that? Do you still do the procedures or how do you handle it? I've been burned. I've been burned uh, a couple times. Uh, I've had uh, several, I'd say probably three or four, yeah, probably three or four body dysmorphic patients that I did not pick up. They were dysmorphic beforehand. Mm -hmm. And I did the surgery for them and I discussed everything as I was supposed to discuss it. And as far as surgical 
outcomes go, everything went as expected. Maybe not perfect, but mm-hmm. as expected and as discussed. But the patients were dysmorphic and they kept picking at things and picking at things. And eventually they, they started to dislike me because I couldn't achieve what they wanted. And it went from a very gentle dislike to a very strong dislike and blaming me for everything that's ever happened to them. And this is real. And it's real and the same story. Let's say let's say that, that same patient's gonna listen to your podcast. Okay. They're gonna be listening to this and say, That you know, I can't say bad words now, but that so and so like messed me up, blah blah. You know, they will never understand what everybody else in the world sees. One stars everywhere that you could possibly be ranked ruining your records. Yeah, I have those. That's exactly who they are actually. And it's, <laughs> well, it, it, it's it's just two people and there's there's one who I can't go into the details, but No, is, I mean no don't you know, definitely don't. <laughs> no, no, but was an extortion artist and was extorting me very gently at first and then got more aggressive and when I resisted started making up fake names. You know, so so these things in the world of plastic surgery unfortunately they happen. And I'd say, you know, the complaints that they have that they've put online are completely 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 unrelated to anything we did so you know but this is this is kind of what you buy uh as a surgeon when you get into plastic surgery you if you want to be popular and you want to do these things you kind of make yourself vulnerable to 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 these kind of patients not something that internists deal with (laughs) you know they didn't ask for that so uh it's something that i kind of you know i I don't want in my life but i I accept it yeah, well, you know, it it's a consequence of, uh, of what I've chosen. I'm in the process of uh, getting a few guests that specialize or do marketing for like Google reviews and doing that type of stuff. Like, OK, that's going to be one of my questions. What do you do when you have a bad review that's just not warranted? You know, a classic one for a lot of doctors is they didn't want to pay because their insurance was like, you had a $30 copay. Actually, you had a $2,000 deductible. Somebody owes me some money. And then they got all mad because you're trying to collect for services that they already agreed to and have already done. So yeah. we always, we get it all in a different way. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, the problem with online reviews now, this is a, a huge problem is, is it's the wild west. People can destroy. Not no just, accountability. No, no accountability. And they can destroy people. They can destroy doctors and small businesses, lawyers, destroy them. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this is millions lost. Per professional in their in their uh, I'd say long term career millions, uh, yeah. even and 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 it really is and there's zero accountability because uh, they're unregistered names you can't trace it back even if you wanted to try to sue someone let's say for defamation and that's a dirty place to go if you try to sue somebody if they're already against you they're gonna go nuts and start making more reviews and more reviews and get their friends to do more reviews and. Uh, it is it is the exact opposite of positive media. You get positive media on TV, it gives you credibility, uh, even if you did nothing. And uh, these kind of reviews, even if you did nothing, they can destroy you. And it's not just doctors, it's small businesses. You could have somebody who wants to come after you. I had somebody go after my cousin who's a private investigator that I used to work with. And he didn't like the uh, the fact that he couldn't get him results within two days. And he started extorting him and said, if you don't give me my money back and do the work that, that I wanted you to do, both, I'm going to get m- my friends and I will go write 20 reviews about you. And they did. And he had no choice but to beg the guy, please, please, please take them down. I'll do whatever you want. Please, please, please. And the guy, fortunately enough, was just angry. He wasn't full, fully crazy. He was just angry. And he Customers, went and, and they look too down. smart. I mean, 
that's that's pretty crafty. I mean, I hope that doesn't catch on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's what happens. I mean, I've had people review me and then apologize, and then they re- they forgot the fake account that they used, and they couldn't oh. go take it down, and Google refused to take it down. <laughs> These things, it, it's crazy. It was just like you know, the, 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 but this is this is now the world of the internet until some regulatory body comes in and says, oh wow. This has nothing to do with First Amendment rights. We actually need to regulate this. Yeah, you know that's the fear right now. Nobody wants to come uh, in terms of a, a senator uh, or anybody who's going to pass a law to say that they want to restrict First Amendment rights because it's a horrendous thing to say. But realistically, it's that's not the case. The case is that they just want you know if they get things registered, there will be accountability. At this point, you can make up any name you want. Yeah, and it's like who's the burden on? Right. Because the burden becomes either it's on the, the business or on the client. And, oh, my goodness, I can't imagine the amount of money. I'm surprised lawyers wouldn't be excited about it because that seems like a lot of uh, cases <laughs> to bring up and litigation and all that. But switching gears, because I know that's, that, that feels like a, a little sore topic for you a little bit. You're in Beverly Hills. I mean, you probably yeah. have, like, one of the nicest offices, I'm assuming. Um, you also, I'm guessing, market. And if you do, I'm curious, what have you done that's in the past that that's, tends to work well to get more clients to know who you are? Yeah, so I'm pretty weak on marketing. Um, I don't spend much. I haven't. I mean, when I started, I tried a couple little things just to get my name out there. But for probably the past three, four years, I really haven't done much. So I myself, I um, pay a little bit to Yelp. They have like a little pay-per-click type thing. I know we have that, but that's just because I'm scared of Yelp. I'm, you know, I'm scared if I don't do that, they're gonna, they're gonna, yeah, they do things, and so. I pay a little bit to Real Self, which is a website for plastic surgery, but not much. And that's about it. I don't do anything else. I, uh, you know, the strongest platform at this point is actually free, and that's social media. And I, I, you know, I use it myself personally. I don't have, you know, any significant following compared to to my to my friends in the area. I have maybe like forty thousand or so, but I think it's a very valuable forty thousand. I, I I really love the people that follow me, they're very interactive, they're very nice, pleasant people. There's very few, I'm very, I'd say very lucky that there are very few internet trolls yeah. who are uh, attacking me and doing things like that and bringing negative attention or negative energy uh, to my life. So I really do love the social media platform. I just haven't really started taking advantage of it yet. But I'd say that's the next step for me is to actually try to have somebody uh, who works in the office fully manage my social media and get it going a little bit more because it's a very powerful way to spread whatever message you want to spread, whether it's a, a message of look at my before and after photos. I'm awesome. Yeah. Or look at it's easy know, that way too. Uh, I'm doing, yeah. Things like that. Or, or, or I'm doing charity work, help me out. Or, or there's a new technique I'm using and here's evidence that it works is photos. I don't need to publish an article. I don't need to go give a seminar. You know, you're talking to 40,000 people at one yeah. time. You could turn that into a million. It is a very, very, very powerful way to to get your your message across instantly to so many people. So I see that. I just unfortunately work so much. I haven't had chance to to try to hire somebody to come do it. Well, it is, for your profession, I would think, like you said, before and after photos, a quick a quick picture of obviously with consent of some like flap or something like that is it's when I look at the uh, some of the Instagram medical stuff that I look at there's a lot of followers there's a lot of people like either they're just in just interested in the human body or like they like gross things I don't know yeah those 
accounts get big. They get a lot of users. Yeah, they do. Yeah, and, and people love to see, you know, my, mine is not like that. Like, mine, I've done a couple things like that, but people just like to see, I think, like, my before and afters and, you know, things like that, which is, it's, it's nice. But I have a lot of friends who have surgical Snapchats or surgical Instagrams, and they display the procedures, and people are really intrigued by it because it is uh, a kind of a mysterious world to them, and they love to see how things are done. They love to see it. Just like I was curious about medicine, other people are curious yeah. about it. And, uh, you know, they, they, they've gotten glimpses through these prior TV shows of The Swan and Dr. 90210 and, you know, all this stuff. But people are truly fascinated by it. It's one of the main things people are fascinated by. I mean, even that TV show Botched, uh, which is my friend Paul Nassif, uh, like that show is a hit. And it's, I think, one of that, that, that channel's biggest TV shows. So... There's a huge... It's like we love a happy ending for those types of shows. Love, yeah. Yeah, and people just love to see what goes on. You know, people have always been locked out of emergency rooms and operating rooms and, you know, being able to see behind the scenes of what goes on. So so they do love seeing it. Some people are grossed out by it. I've got my Brazilian friends who uh, follow me over there, and every time I put up anything remotely surgical or what they would consider gross, I get like 20 messages at once. Like... <laughs> Bro, bro, why you have to do that, bro? Oh, right, every single time. So it's not for no. everybody. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I, uh, if I ever do something, I try to give adequate warning beforehand. Say, you know, close your eyes if, uh, if you're weak in, in the yeah, stomach. Yeah, exactly. Hey, give us a story. Um, you might, if you have one off the cuff, of a story where you really help somebody and they were, either, they were super appreciative or you noticed that their life is definitely going to be changed and you were a part of that. Yeah, lots of those. <laughs> I got a very good job, and I'm very lucky. I, uh, I've had, I've had, uh, you know, I've had a couple of domestic violence patients here. They're domestic violence victims, and one that kind of, or a couple of them actually, but I mean, one that stands out, I'd say, was this lady who, she had her throat cut by her husband, and this was no menial act. You know, just trying to scare somebody or hurt somebody. I mean, he was trying right. to kill her. And he grabbed her and broke a vase and held her by her head and sliced her throat open. And uh, she, he called the, the ambulance. She went to the emergency room and she was pretty much assumed, you know, to be dead at that point because they had, he had cut down all the way to her spine through the, through the trachea, through everything. So, um, Luckily, he cut a little bit high. Then he cut a new major artery. They ended up intubating her, uh, and they saved her life in the in the ER. Then they closed everything up. She went home. Her voice slowly came back over the next couple of months. She was able to swallow again over the next couple of months. And uh, she came to me out of her own research. She and her friend found me. They came to me, and I told her, you know, she wanted to get rid of the scars. Every time she looked at the scars... She would have it was a post-traumatic stress. She would think back to, to the event. And um, I told her, yeah, you know, don't, don't worry at all. I'll take care of this. You don't have to wait. A lot of people say wait a year to treat any kind of scar like this. But if you've dealt with people who have been through trauma, you realize that the risk of waiting a year is much greater than, you know, the risk you're taking on by treating it early. So these are things you have to be aware of. And I, you know, I was aware of that because I've dealt with them a lot. And so I told her, don't worry, I go, you know, we'll take care of this soon, just pick a time, we'll do it under local anesthetic, no problem. So 
fixed her tracheotomy scar, fixed the scar where, you know, the, the husband had sliced her across the neck. And at the same time, to distract her, I said, um, you know, you have a little bit of hooding in your upper eyelids. Do you mind if I do? And I've done this before. It's like a little trick. So I do like an upper eyelid surgery on them, which is purely cosmetic. Takes me, you know, half hour, 45 minutes. And while they're healing, they're no longer looking at their neck scars or their face scars. They're actually looking at how pretty their eyelids look. You know, she came in a couple of weeks later and she even realized that. she And she said, you know, doctor, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was so sweet of you to do that. She was honestly like, when I was healing, I wasn't even looking at my neck anymore. I was just looking at, oh my God, how big my eyes were now and how my eyes just opened up and I loved it and it was so great. And and this was really, you know, like I, I was about to start crying. Like I, I felt so good that she said that and she was so stressed because this this pole who had like cut her across the throat was getting off in court for aggravated assault as opposed to attempted murder wow and she was yeah because because it was a domestic uh a domestic violence situation and he's the one who called the cops so even though he tried to kill her it came out as aggravated assault wow and yeah, and she was freaked out. She was crying. She was worried. Oh my God, I don't know what to do. And you know, amongst all this, she was still looking at the you know this little tiny distraction of Oh my God, I love my upper eyelids. Oh, thank you so much. And and you know, the couple weeks after that, the scar on her neck was almost invisible. It was super super hard to see. That's wild. That's a great story. I mean that that'll get you motivated every morning to get up and do this. Uh, no, I mean I, I forget. I, I got lots of this. <laughs> <laughs> I got. My, my, I got, I got lots and lots of uh, crazy, crazy stories. Well, what's wild is y'all do a surgery. It could be eight hours in there, depending on what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, I do plenty of eight-hour surgeries. There, it blows me away. Yeah, most of mine are probably three or four, but but it's, it, it's it's not a long time. I mean, you think about it, you start at six a.m. You know, you're 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 done at two p.m. It's you know that's that's not that yeah, bad. Sure. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad the surgeon feels that way. That's that's the what matters most. <laughs> We're accustomed exactly. To Years of doing it. I don't want to keep you on the phone forever. So, what is it that you do outside of work that it could be volunteering, it could be hobbies that gets you grounded in other areas of your life? I, I am by no means grounded. <laughs> I am. I, uh, my passions, I'd say my severe passions would be racing. So I race, uh, I used to race boats and cars. Um, now I, now I do pretty, uh, pretty fast offshore boating, but not racing anymore. I still race cars, but those are my two favorite things. And then in the wintertime skiing, I used to be a, a ski patrol. So I used to be, a, I used to instruct driving, uh, race car driving as well. And I used to be a ski patrol, but, but skiing, racing, those are my favorite things. I used to play piano a lot. I used to compose. That was great for me. But now I live in a condo. I don't have a, a piano. I've kind of, and I do have one in my office though. But I've, I'd say, lost my skill. I can't compose anymore. I can't play so well anymore. But that's what I used to love. Uh, I'm cooking too. But I have, I even have my own menu on my, uh, on my Instagram somewhere on like hashtag I think Ben Talley's Kitchen. But I haven't been able to grow that menu any any farther because I've just been so busy. And when I get home, I can't, you know, I don't have the energy to cook. A man of many talents here. Do you happen to have any favorite books, podcasts, anything like that that you secretly love and something that everybody should definitely check out? 
Yours is the only podcast I listen to. Wow. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Any books? Uh, no. What's in, I don't read books much anymore. But what's funny is the way that I got my scholarship into medical school was I was a private investigator at the time. Cause I finished college a couple years early. I went to Spain for six months. I was a private investigator for a year. And during that time, uh, this is before smartphones existed, I would sit there reading book after book after book. So I've, I've read hundreds and hundreds of books because you can imagine a year, eight hours a day, I was reading. Wow. And um, at my med school interview at, um, at Vanderbilt even, the dean of the school was interviewing me and asked me, like, have you read any good books lately? This is their, you know, their chit-chat. They don't have much to, to ask. Uh, I, I used to do interviews, too, for, for my med school admissions, so I know you have to have some basic questions to ask. One of them was that. And his typical response, probably from someone else, was, um, let me think. You know, and um, that's, that's usually how it goes. And I gave him immediately a list of 20 books in a row that I had read. And... <laughs> It was funny because it was like I, I said, like Water for Chocolate, Water for Elephants, East of Eden, Garden of Eden. I would just come up with – and there are all these books that I read that had similar names coincidentally and I just kind of listed them like that. And I ended up getting a full scholarship because he was so intrigued by how this guy who's going into to med school has the ability to read so many books. Since that time, I can't say I've read any books. <laughs> but I had, in my life, I've read many. No, that's fair, man. It's interesting to see what people say. When some of them are like, well, I don't read anymore, but I do Audible. And then other people like yeah. yourself, it's like, you've read so many books. You're just like, I'm kind of burned out for now. Maybe one day I'll pick them back up. I, I, I watch DC and Marvel comic TV shows on Netflix is what I do. I watch <laughs> Luke Cage. I watch Daredevil. I watch, uh, I, I watch all those shows. That's awesome. <laughs> a, balanced, a balanced diet yeah. right there. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Dr. Ben Tali, thank you so much for uh, being on the show. How can people get in touch with you and find out more about you? Uh, so they can get in touch with me by email or on my Instagram is the easiest. My Instagram is Dr. Ben Tali. So if you just put in Dr. Ben, like D-R-B-E-N, it pops up. Um, so they can always message me there. Otherwise, my website is beverlyhillscenter.com, which is a great domain name if you didn't notice it. It's a beverlyhillcenter.com and they can always email me through there as well ah, perfect perfect again thank you so much for being on the show and hopefully you'll get a few clicks and a few phone calls uh, after after this from China well you know I progress mostly in America <laughs> I just happen <laughs> to live and work here <laughs> well it's a wonderful place to be it really is I'd like to tell you about a special deal we're doing right now. If you're listening to this months or years from right now, just contact me. Maybe we can still offer this for you. But what it is, the acupuncture no-needle book. We're doing some bonuses. For the same cost of the book, not only do you get a one-hour, one-on-one coaching session, but I will actually throw in the probe and the ear seeds, which I already like to do. But the big thing is you're going to get the electric acupuncture pin for no extra cost. The electric acupuncture pin actually helps you find the acupuncture points that you need to stimulate. And because it's kind of like a muscle stem but with a special tip, you're going to get far superior results. Definitely go to needlelessacupuncture.net and check that out. Also, uh, the first book, Today's Choices, Tomorrow's Health. You know, we're talking tips from China. We're talking 10 plus years experience as a chiropractor, answering patients' questions day in and day out, blueprints that I personally use to lose weight, not eat so much, and also keep my finances in order. It's something that I'm passionate about. 
That's why I wrote the book. It's over 200 pages, 40-something chapters. Uh, again, offering a bonus for this one as well, a one-on-one -on -one coaching call for one hour at no extra cost. We got t-shirts, some uh, different state pride, some chiropractic t-shirts. If you got any ideas, let me know. I can maybe design up something and make it available for everybody. Follow us on uh, social media because there are a lot of sales that go on with these shirts. Let you know if you write a review, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever, let me know. Send me an email. And every month, I can raffle off one prize. The prize is to be determined, but we can do that. Also, if you check underneath the resources page on doctorsperspective.net, you'll see all our affiliate links, which we get a little kickback for. And then, of course, on every show note page, we have Amazon links for the books that people have mentioned and any other types of products. So if you click that, Amazon pays us a little bit. As always, thank you so much for listening. You can buy the host a cup of coffee on the PayPal button on the website. And remember, listen, critically think about it, and implement it into your practice. We just went hashtag behind the curtain, and this episode has come to an end. I hope you got the right dose for your optimal life. Please spread the word about this podcast by telling two friends, sharing on social media, and visit the show notes on a doctorsperspective.net to see all the references from today's guest. A sincere thank you in advance. You've been listening to Dr. Justin Trosclair, giving you a doctor's perspective.